Hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is really my favorite, my favorite holiday. It just uh, seems to be a lot about appreciation and good food and friends. And I think those three things are, are my favorite things. And it's not about, you know, having to put up all the Christmas lights. We kind of have a Griswold home and uh, lots of lights, lots of ornaments, lots, lots of... Uh, Stuff we don't need, okay, that comes out of the attic that you trip over the trusses in the attic and to get down and all those things that uh, Chevy Chase goes through, I've, I've experienced. And so uh, shorting out your electrical system in the house and the whole thing, but, but I appreciate Thanksgiving. I got in the car on Thanksgiving morning because you're always missing something. You're missing some whipped cream or you're missing some this or that or get one more yam and I got in the car, turned on the radio, and I couldn't believe it. They were playing Christmas music on Thanksgiving Day. And here we are. We're going to start this four-week thing where we're going to be hearing Christmas songs from Thanksgiving on to the end of Christmas. It's amazing to me, on December 26th, after Christmas, you don't hear a song. It's dead. I mean, because the public is so tired of hearing those things. But, you know, but... Uh, the problem is there's a lot of Christmas songs, I don't know if you know this, that have nothing to do with Christmas. Yeah. Now you say, well, there's not, there are a lot of Christmas songs that have nothing to do with Jesus. Well, I'm not even putting that in that category. They have nothing to do plainly with Christmas at all. Like, for instance, one of our favorite all-time songs is, is Jingle Bells. But Jingle Bells was written in 1847 for Thanksgiving, not for Christmas. And if you really look at the, uh, at the song, it's about a guy that's, you know, it's got a girl next to him and a one-horse open sleigh. He says, a day or two ago, I thought I'd take a ride, and, and soon Miss Fanny Bright was seated by my side. Okay, this horse, the horse was lean and lank. Misfortune seemed his lot. He got into a drifted bank, and then we got upside. So basically, they crashed in this one horse. This is a Christmas song. They crashed in a drift in a one-horse open slate. Now, they've crashed. Now, now you may not be familiar with this song. The song. Here's verse 3. A day or two ago, the story I must tell, I went out on the snow, and on my back I fell. I mean, this is about accidents and tragedies and ER. And then an, a gent, a gentleman, was riding by in a one-horse open sleigh. And look what this guy did. This is the good Samaritan. He laughed as there I sprawling lie, and, but quickly drove away. All right, this is, this is a Christmas song. <laughs> or we got songs like... Uh, Winter Wonderland, it's a guy in a tuberculosis sanitarium looking out a window and seeing winter and kind of reminiscing and, and all those things. And then, of course, he comes up with this imagination. He's out there with this girl, and, and all of a sudden, we'll call him Parson Brown, and Parson Brown somehow gets into the whole issue. Are you guys married? Okay, he says, man, a woman are making a snowman, and all of a sudden, during all these verses, the parson keeps asking, are you guys married? I think it's the snowman making's coat for something else. It's a Christmas song. Or how about Let It Snow? 
you know, let us know. I mean, being, not being Crosby, but Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra made that song so famous. Okay, we love that. You know, the, the weather outside is frightful. It's, you know, it's frightful outside, but, uh, but inside the fire is so delightful. So here we are, we're holding each other tight, and the lights are dim, and the fires, you know, it's, and they keep holding me tight, and don't let me go, and it gets a little risque. I don't think we should have our children singing this song. <laughs> One of the worst ones is, baby, it's cold outside. I don't know if you've ever listened to the lyrics on this thing, but I mean, this is close, this is pretty close to stuff I can't even say publicly, but... In the original score sheet, of course, it's a guy and a girl singing back to each other. The guy, the girl is called the mouse. The guy's part is called the wolf. Now, just put two and two together there. The wolf. And then, of course, there's this, there's this diatribe that they're having at the end. And she answers, she answers him three times. And like, I, I really don't want to stay. Okay, that's her first line. Then the second line is the answer is no. And the third line is say, what's in this drink? Okay, so this guy's getting this girl drunk, okay, to keep her around and not let her go. You put two and two together. We call that a Christmas song. <laughs> I know it was sung in Elf. I know Will Ferrell made it real famous. We took the whole youth group to listen to it sung. But, I mean, this guy would be in jail today, okay, if, if, if this was acted out. And of course, then, then, there's, then there's Frosty the Snowman. Well, that's about as weird as they get. You know, some silk-hatted, invisible person creates the snowman that turns into, you know, it's got voice and legs and everything else, starts playing with all the town kids and ends up running into the town. Everyone's scared. The cops are chasing him, and he starts melting to death. Okay, it's really about witchcraft. It's weird. Okay, but we call it Christmas. And then, and then, of course, we all watch, you know, Sound of Music, you know, and these are a few of my favorite things. Listen, this has nothing to do with Christmas. I mean, a guy, he married a nun. Why did he marry a nun? Well, he needed, he had some servant children, he needed training. He had to get those kids over the Alps to run from the Nazis. Okay, this is what that song is all about. Okay, we, so we go, all these songs, we just keep singing, 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 but they have nothing to do with Christmas. You know, all joking aside, that there's a lot that we emphasize in this season that's true, but it's, but it's incomplete. It's not the complete truth of really what this thing's all about. And of course, in the first century, I doubt very much if they celebrated these holidays and these traditions in the church, but as the church continued on and Certain traditions were established just to stop and recognize certain truths. That's really how this thing started. And, of course, then as we expanded through Europe, the, the Christianity did, we began to adopt some of the customs of the Germanic people and other things. And we have Charles Dickens and Tiny Tim and the whole thing. But, uh, but really, it's, it's a time to stop and think about what this thing really means. I mean... We say God loves people, and we really reflect on that during this time. It's absolutely true. We, we emphasize in the season, the season that he came to rescue us, absolutely true, and that, and that he became one of us. And I think his, to understand his full humanity is absolutely very, very important. Yes, he became one of us. 
and uh, he identified with our suffering by being poor. You can't be you can't be any poorer than to be born in a manger. I know they look really nice in nativity scenes, but those of us who have some farm animals know that if you get in a stall with a bunch of sheep that's been there for a while and add a cow into that, maybe a pig, probably this Jewish people, they didn't have a pig in there, but okay, this is anything you would want to put a child in. It would be abuse today. And so really it's interesting that God himself, he was born into that particular environment. These are all true. But there are things we we emphasize in a few months at Easter that also need to be emphasized at this time as we reflect upon, upon this Christmas season about what Christmas actually means. This child came to fulfill a work, and a, a job was assigned to him. This is what we need to understand. You know, one thing is about Jesus is that he was extremely conscious of uh, a work that he was called by his father to fulfill. At least we know he was conscious of that at the age of 12, and that there was a, a work that defined his, his life. He said, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me. And notice this, it doesn't just, I'm going to go do his will, but I'm going to finish his work. And I want you to focus on that. I'm going to finish his work. This work included, yes, his life, his example, the testing he went through to prove his, his divinity, his perfection, his obedience, his complete submission to the Father. Yes, it involved his works and his miracles. Yes, it involved his teachings. But this, this work went way beyond that. You know, the night that Jesus was betrayed in John 17, he, he prayed. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And in verse 1 of John 17, he, Jesus prayed this, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, and that your Son may glorify you. His work included also that which he was going to finish, that he would be judged in my place and in your place, that he would be punished in my place and in your place, and that in that, he, dying, he would taste death, for me and for, for you, and that he would be raised again from the dead and he would be exalted to be king of the universe. That's an incredible part of the work of Christ, okay, that Jesus says had to be finished. Jesus went on to say this work he was conscious of. I have a testimony weightier than that of John. He's talking about John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me, here it goes again, to finish the very works I am doing involved a whole kit and caboodle of things, but it did include, finally, the cross. Okay, They testify that the Father has sent me. Going on, he says, I brought you glory in John 17, 4. I read this before. By finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, that work included everything I mentioned from his teaching, his miracles, his example, but also what he went through and that passion, that 24 hours of all the suffering he went through in my place and in your place and dying the excruciating death that he died on the cross, that was part of his work. Because what was the last thing that he said on the cross in John 19.30? And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. I've come to do your work and to finish it. It is finished finished. I know these are not kind of things we kind of celebrate. We got to like, you know, when Will Ferrell 
prayed in what, Telegata nights, you know, an eight-pound baby Jesus. Okay, when we kind of look at that away in a manger and everything else, but, but this was a work that he had to finish, and that work actually involved being brutally murdered in my place and in your place and being raised from the dead in his weakness, just like God raises us up in our weakness. Can I hear an amen on that? Amen. I know this isn't just a warm, fuzzy Christmas message, but I am deeply burdened that we're, we're not preaching a complete gospel sometimes. And we're not emphasizing some things that we really, really need to, to emphasize. And so I have received this. So what was the work of Christ? Let's, let's look at this. I mean, we got a few things that we could look at that people think. Uh, was it to die a, a martyr for what he believed? In other words, he just pushed the establishment too far. That, that's why he died. That's what some people believe. He just pushed the button too far. He pushed the establishment too far, and he ended up getting murdered. Or was it to live a moral example, you know, for us to follow? Well, the problem with the moral example theory is that if, if that was all that Jesus was about, then Jesus wasn't very moral. And what are you saying? Well, because the man that we say gave us a moral example declared to people that he was God. And if he wasn't God, if he was just a moral example and he was, he was telling people that he was God, I, I don't really consider that very moral. You know, C.S. Lewis said, you, you can't do any of this patronizing nonsense that he was, you know, a great teacher and a great moral example because he didn't give you room for that. He is only one of three things. He is either God or he is a lunatic because he thinks he is God and he's not. Or he's a deceiver because he knew he wasn't God and he spent his ministry convincing people that he was. So you can't, you can't say, well, that's why... You know, that was the work of Christ, just to be a moral example, because it was just that. I believe it is that. I mean, he was an example of how we're to live or being conformed into his image. But the issue is this. He was, he was much more. Was the work of Christ this? Was it to reveal God's hatred of sin? You know, the cross didn't provide really anything for us, some people believe. It's just, it was just God letting us know how ticked off he was at our disobedience, and so he made an example of Jesus. Or was it to identify with our suffering as a human race? And that's kind of really, as I grew up in the particular denomination that I was exposed to as a, as a, as a young boy, because that was kind of what the cross was. I kept looking at crucifixes all day, and I, when I looked at the crucifixes all day, I wasn't necessarily looking, look what Jesus did for me. I always looked at it before I was born again. Look what Jesus kind of modeled for me. He's suffering like I suffer in life. And, and yeah, there's some identity in that, but is that why he died on the cross, just to let us know, like I suffer with the human race? That was the if that was the, the case, that, that could have been displayed, that, that suffering in maybe a more merciful, merciful way. You can imagine the intensity of the suffering of Jesus on the cross and what took place in the trial, what took place in the garden. And I mean, here in one short period of time, he is absolutely cut off from his father, who he had perfect relationship with, that he loved and he always did what the Father wanted him to do. And he lost that relationship because he became a curse for us. 
He was betrayed by his friends that he laid his life down for. Broke his heart. Some believe Jesus died actually of a, a, a water sack in his heart of the stress he went through in the Garden of Gethsemane is really what killed him. It, it, and when, because when water came out of his side, his heart was stressed out. He was falsely accused. He was mocked. He was hated. He was beaten. Skin was removed off his back. Isaiah said, there's no beauty in him that we would even desire him. He was mutilated. He was beat to a pulp. He couldn't even, he was a tough guy. Jesus was tough. He couldn't carry his own cross. He was so beat up. And then just go through what crucifixion was like. I don't hear to break that down. He goes, Bob, this is not Easter. No, I want to make sure we see the baby. We see what that baby came into the world to do. I'm afraid for the church a little bit that we are starting to apologize for God. And we're starting to hide a gospel that was meant to offend people because we don't want to offend. Now, if I'm rude, that that is wrong. If I'm not a loving person, that is wrong. But I'm not to hide the truth of the gospel in the name of not offending people. We gotta let the gospel offend. The message should be offensive, and we need to be aware of that and not hide it. And I'll talk a little bit here why it offends. Now, here's the truth. Yes, Jesus Christ came to man to bring man back into relationship with God. Now, that particular statement assumes three things. First thing this thing assumes is this. I get my get my little thing going here. I'm fro. I got a frozen frame here. Uh, Jerry, you can help me out here for a second. I don't know why I'm frozen, but I'm frozen. It assumes three things. Okay, can you help me out here and get to the next frame? Thanks, buddy. There he goes, man. It, oh, everything went wacko. It assumes three things. All three in one. Okay. Am I back here? Can I run this? Okay, I just, I just, I'm froze. We'll, we'll work on this at halftime. All right, it assumes three things. One, man is alienated from God, if that is true. Man is the cause of that particular alienation. And the third thing, it assumes that man cannot resolve this alienation by his good behavior. Let me just start off with number one, that man is alienated from God. You know, Isaiah 59, verse two, we don't really quote this verse a whole lot these days. But Isaiah said, but your iniquities, I'll put my iniquities, my iniquities have separated you, have separated me from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now, it doesn't matter what phrases I use as an American. You know, I, you know, I talk sometimes to the man upstairs. Okay. 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 Or, you know, I am spiritual or I, I, you know, I got a bent to me. I, I believe in God. It, it doesn't matter what kind of phrases that I do or I'm conscious of God. The issue is that we are horribly, we're not even, we're not even slightly, we're horribly, I'm going to use that word, separated from God. That's the truth of the gospel. It's drastic. The second thing this is, is that I'm the cause of that alienation. Genesis 3 is, is a beautiful story. We kind of we don't dive into Genesis 3 because it seems so simple, almost seems fairy tale ish and 
mythological, but it's not. I can get into even how you can just look at the present population of the earth and kind of add wars and famines and everything else, and you can get back to the original man not too long ago, like 6,000 years. You, you can do that. But, but, but the, really, the, the human race is, 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 is illustrated in Genesis 3. It's, not just, it's just not an allegory, but what happened to Adam and Eve is really what all, all society and the newspaper and the media and the news and everything else reveals, is that man, man uh, saw the fruit. They saw that it was fun and sensual. It, was, it, was, it tasted good. It brought pleasure. It brought joy. Come on, sin is fun. You know, look at those miserable sinners over there. No, they're having some fun. They really are. They're having some fun for a while. For a while. The pleasures of sin for a season, the Bible calls it. It was also full of impressive image. So we live for pleasure. We live for sensuality. We live to please ourselves. Even our Thanksgiving custom. I was in Uganda as uh, one of the leaders of the church there was explaining to these other Ugandans, because he has been in the U.S. on Thanksgiving, our custom. And he talked about what you do when you go to someone's house on Thanksgiving Day. And you start off watching games, and you're eating chips and dip. And he goes through this category of all that we eat on Thanksgiving Day. And by the time he's just almost got just to the main course, we haven't gotten to the five pies we eat and everything else. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Ugandans were on the ground holding their side, crying, laughing so hard. They couldn't believe a person could eat that much, f- much food in one day, you know, let alone in one week. I mean, we, we, we really are people of pleasure. Yeah, we really are. And uh, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about that. I think your digestive system has already done its job. <laughs> They're also full of impressive image. It was pleasant to the eyes. We love image. We love looking good. We love, you know, looking well-dressed or, or looking this. I'm not saying wear rags, but the, but the issue is we, we do like to impress. There's something in us that likes to impress. And then last, it was to make one wise. It, that's called autonomy, that I can live according to my own wisdom, what I think is right. You know, it's interesting if you study Babel, and that's an interesting topic. I don't want to get into it too deeply, but really, it was man trying to live autonomously from God, separated from God, in his own wisdom. And when man does things in his own wisdom, by his own understanding, it leads to chaos. It will always lead to chaos. That's why a lot of social programs don't work. Now, I believe government should be compassionate. I'm not here to get political or weird that way. I understand, and, then we, and probably many of us benefit from that compassion. But when man just on his own tries to fix man, it leads to chaos, just as much as Babel, the original one, led to the confusion of tongues. And it goes on throughout Scripture, the same thing. Always leads to chaos. And so man and his independence, that way there we have the, the human race. And, and uh, so going after sensual things and establishing my image and living by my own understanding of life, I, I've, I've alienated myself from God and, I, and I'm stuck. I can't get out of this thing. And so here's the issue. Man cannot resolve this 
by good behavior alone. He can't. One, he's guilty. And so I've crossed the line where I have, I have offended God. I, he said, well, then I can ask for forgiveness. But even that is incomplete in itself. And I was, back in the 80s, I really got into uh, Francis Infuso's Christian Equippers International uh, Glad Tidings School of Evangelism. We brought it to Bible Temple, and, you know, I just really got excited about that. And I spent about a good three to five years doing a lot of street preaching. And I liked their system. It gave me a nice little approach. And, hi, my name's Bob. And, you know, can I just ask you uh, two questions? And uh, we're kind of really easy. And, and, of course, everybody feels intimidated by a stranger wanting to ask him questions. And I said, first... Uh, do you believe that there's a heaven? And they would say, they would, most people, about 90% of people I interviewed said yes. And I said, are you going there when you die? Now, the deception of the, the introduction that there really was four questions, but you kind of get them on question number two, then you have to go to question number three. And what you're listening for is you're listening to what they're trusting in. And, of course, at the end of the presentation, you, you got them stuck. It was, a well, it was a well-packaged presentation. And they said, well, I, I'll ask God for forgiveness. Well, here's the problem with that. Okay, let's just say you robbed that store over there, and you're now serving time. You're doing six months for armed robbery. And uh, you, the jailer comes by and says, I want to see the judge because I want to say I'm sorry, and I really will not do this again. Will the, will, the, will the courts forgive me? I said, will that get you out of jail? Well, no. So just asking forgiveness doesn't cut it, does it? No. And guess what you bring, what you bring now into the picture? The cross. The suffering of Jesus. But I said, if I serve your time, or somebody else serves your time, justice is served, is it not? And so here's our problem, is that we're guilty. And something has to happen for our, for our guilt to be removed, because we are guilty. The other thing is, we have a heart that only God can change. How many people notice that, that you don't change real well by yourself? How many people sometimes just don't like yourself? It's just, I'm just kind of tired of myself. Why did I do that again? It's stupid you. Now, here's the issue. The gospel does not start with the birth of Jesus, but the gospel starts in the beginning of human history. Genesis 3, verse 21 to 22. The Lord God, notice this, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, it's interesting. Isn't it interesting that prior to God doing that, Adam and Eve wanted to deal with their sin? And how did they deal with their sin? They did it two ways. One, they hid from God. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't good. The second is they, they cut branches down and made leaves and tried to do their own efforts. They tried to cover themselves up. Isn't it interesting how we've really gotten weird in some moralities we have? I mean, I, I have a liberal section to my family that I love very much, and they're part of my mission. And, you know, and I can't believe how many morals they have that I don't have. Like, I remember I was in the car at Christmas time two years ago, and I, I just felt like a cherry dip ice cream cone. And I got one at Dairy Queen because I love Dairy Queen. And, uh, 
And I'm, I'm eating my cherry dip ice cream cone. I'm driving home, and my older sister looked at me and says, you actually drive while you're eating a cherry dip ice cream cone? Well, how else am I going to eat it? Do we have a rule here? <laughs> now, I could go in all these rules that she tries to lay on me, but, but there's some big ones that I know that she doesn't think are that bad, that I would think are huge. We, act to, we like to do the fig tree thing, but God did something. He clothed them. In other words, after the fall, God killed an innocent animal and clothed the first couple. There's a picture here of the gospel. We see in Exodus 29, 35 to 37, kind of a complex chapter. If you've ever gone into Exodus and Leviticus and you're trying to understand the sacrificial systems and the priesthood, it's kind of difficult if you're looking through that. You've got to kind of read slow and break it down. But it's talking about the consecration of Aaron and his sons as priests. And it says, do for Aaron and his sons everything I have commanded you, taking seven days to ordain them, sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering. And notice, they're going to use this word three times in these verses I'm going to read, to make atonement. And I'll define that in a little bit. Taking seven days to ordain them. So every day, for seven days, there was a bull killed, blood was shed, before Aaron and his sons could be consecrated to the priesthood. Then, purify the altar by making atonement for it, the second time it's used and anoint it to consecrate it for seven days. Okay, make atonement for the altar. In other words, keep offering a bull, a bull, shed blood, kill another animal, just like he did for Aaron and his sons, because I, I want you to make atonement for the altar. For seven days, make atonement for, for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar will be most holy. Whatever touches it will be holy. Atonement, atonement, atonement. Now here's the picture that we get is that their priestly ministry and what they were offering to God was not going to be accepted unless an animal died and shed his blood. It would not be accepted. I don't care how sincere they were. I don't care, you know, how called they were, how chosen they were. What they were offering to God would not be accepted unless something died first. Died first. And so before a priest could make an offering, before an altar could be used, something had to die. Blood had to be shed. I'm preaching here today before you for one reason, one reason I'm able to. That's because the blood of Jesus was shed for me. I got, a, I got a ticket to speak here. Yeah, I've proven through ministry to develop my skill and everything else. But I am here because Jesus shed his blood. And that's the only thing that gives me permission to be here outside of a divine call to do this. But, but the idea is that I could not speak to you unless the blood was shed. Sometimes we lose track of that. Now, Leviticus 17, 11 really tells us the reason why, why blood here. For the life of a, create, a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves. There's that word again on the altar. It is the blood 
that makes atonement for one's life. So and this answers the question, why a gospel of blood? Some people call the gospel the bloody gospel. Why a gospel of blood? It's not that God loves gore. You know, I, I really appreciated Mel Gibson's courage in, you know, in, the, in the movie The Passion. I really do. I, you kind of follow some of the things that he produced. He, he can really get intense in gore sometimes, you know. You know, we love the Patriot, but, you know, there's this one part of the Patriot where he takes revenge on the guy that you, you can't let your kids see. You know, <laughs> he just, he likes, he likes a little bit of a mutilation. God does not, and neither does Mel Gibbs, I'm not trying to say that, but God, God does not delight in gore. He says in many places, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't, he doesn't take pleasure in that. But one thing about blood is this, is that life comes through blood. So if my blood is not spilt, life is not taken. They say that you can lose up to 40% of your blood and stay alive, but after that, you're dead. And so blood is the witness that life is given. It's not the gore, it's the fact that life was given. Death took place. You know, Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2, 9 and 17. It says, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while. Okay, that's, that's Christmas. That's what we're celebrating. That's a way in a manger. No crib for a bit. He's now crowned with glory and honor because why? He suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he, Jesus, this man who first entered the world like every man and every woman, as a baby, as a child, that this Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone. For this reason, he is made like them. In other words, this baby was born to taste death. He was made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Aren't we glad that we approach God through a priest that was human like us? That he might make, here we go, atonement for the sins of the people. Now the present life that I'm experiencing and you're experiencing has to do a lot with what Jesus is doing right now and what's called his session in heaven as our high priest. Life is coming to us in so many ways. But that is made possible because Jesus tasted death for you and I, and he went before the Father, presented his atonement to the Father so that the Father could accept you and I. I get to Jesus, you get to Jesus through the blood. Through the blood. Sometimes we don't want to mention it. We're going to use other words because we don't want to offend the visitor. But the Bible's very clear. This is the gospel from the very beginning of time. I have to see blood that was shed. Now, what is atonement? The Hebrew, kafar, means to cover. And it's translated many ways in English. It's translated to appease, to cleanse, to forgive, to pacify, to purge, to reconcile. The old English word, atonement, means to be made as one, at one man. It means to bring agreement, to reconcile, 
two parties to come in agreement, alienated man and a loving and holy God, come back together into relationship. But the word atonement really does tell us something that has to be satisfied. And so sometimes, some of us will ask, why death? Why, why blood? Why God? Why did you require this? And I th- think we really got to deeply understand this is we've rebelled against God and we have deeply offended God. I mean, I, we, we think, well, we, we disobeyed God, but a lot of times we don't even realize that we deeply offended him. We hurt him. We, we wrecked and destroyed relationship. The idea that we rebelled against him and his moral standard, if God doesn't judge, then God endorses anarchy. If he doesn't uphold his law, if he doesn't uphold his moral nature, then everything becomes absolute chaos. We see that in our society even today because we don't enforce things. We see that people have just gone run rampant with evil. I mean, it's amazing. If you just look at the paper and the news and things that you see, and, you know, if you go to some of the most notorious outlaws of the 1800s, you love cowboy movies, okay? The the vilest one would be a pretty... Pretty nominal criminal today. That's how far we've fallen. You know, I used to really, really wrestle with 1 John 1.9. And I want to talk about why 1 John 1.9 is just. You know the scripture, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And why I wrestled with that, and I wrestled it for a long time, why is this just? And I just want to just, just say this, that there's nothing just about forgiveness. If Isaac did something against me, you know, he did donuts in my front yard and vandalized my barn. He, he did something wrong to me and he comes, Bob, I'm so sorry. I'm, Why? I forgive you. I forgive you, Isaac. Come on, let's forget about it. Where's the justice? You just destroyed my property. You know, you have to now spend thousands of dollars repairing what you destroyed. There's no, I forgive you for that. It means I'll let you off the hook. There's no justice in that. Why is it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us? Because it doesn't seem that forgiveness is very just at all. In fact, when I do forgive, I got to open myself up to injustice. I'll forgive you if I can guarantee you won't do it again. You can't guarantee that. You just have to forgive. But why is it just? It's just because Jesus paid the price for that my sin and that person I'm, I'm forgiving sin. Death has taken place. So God now can forgive. And that's just because a death took place. An atonement took place. An appeasement took place. Blood was shed for that sin. Go back into the Days of Israel, you imagine, I used to say this to my youth group, and, you know, you, some, some Jewish young boy raised a nice lamb, we'll call him Lammy, and he stole something, you know, from a neighbor, and the father has to make restitution, and he says, now, son, we'll call him his son Benjamin, Benjamin, you know, you sinned, this is a, we have to now go and offer a sin offering, I want you to go get Lammy. And old Benjamin, he knows what that's going to mean. That means we're going to take him to the priest, and the priest is going to slay him, and we're going to 
offer up a sin offering. I think that would kind of drive home a message that my stealing cost this lamb its life. Brings it deep, doesn't it? Justice has been served. Jesus was the lamb. Now we can't understand, and I'll close it here, we cannot understand God's wrath, or excuse me, we can't understand God's love unless we understand God's wrath. 1 John 4, 16 says this, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. We love this one. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. But just as he who called you is holy. But here's the other scripture that sometimes we don't quote. So be holy in all you do, for it's written, be holy because I am holy. So yes, God is love, but also God is holy. And holiness must judge evil. We don't appreciate forgiveness. We don't appreciate sometimes God's love because we don't understand his holiness and we don't understand the gravity of our condition. And so God's wrath offends modern man. It offends modern man. And I'm just going to deal with the first thing and I'll come back next week and bring a lot more practical application here. But why does modern man get offended? And I'm going to give you one part of this and then we'll pick it up next week. Why is modern man offended at the message of the cross? And the first, because it is violent. It's violent. And we have a culture where everything's about peace. Peace at all costs. Peace with no sacrifice. Just peace. Can't we just all get along? Visualize world peace. Get a one bumper sticker says. It's just peace. It's just all about peace. It's all about peace and all about peace and all about peace and all about peace. We don't like violence. And we're presenting a gospel where a God says for us to have a relationship, violence has to take place to deal with this sin. But you got to remember something. You got to remember this about the, sometimes the necessity of violence. You and I experience great security in this nation, as some nations do around the world also, because men and women had to be willing to enter into a world of violence. Some of them had to suffer violence. Some of them had to commit acts of violence to secure the fact that you and I would not experience evil. I'll never forget watching Saving Private Ryan with my, my wife. There's a scene when they've gotten to the ridge of Omaha Beach up on the bridge and they scan all these bodies laying in the surf and the sand of all these American GIs. 3,000, by the way, died on that beach that day. I remember saying to Sue, 
they saved Western civilization. You see, they don't think they wanted to do violent things. Those who have been in combat, they regret even some of the things they had to do. But here's the point, they had to do it. You know, we, we so exalt niceness, just niceness. But love isn't just nice. Paul said, who is led into sin? And do I not burn? I can't look at somebody who is suffering evil at the hands of an agenda that could destroy their life and just passively just sit by and just say, I want to smile at you. Come on, this is nice. Love provokes sometimes. Love provokes to judge. Love provokes to act. Love provokes to defend. Love provokes to take action. God took action against something that would destroy the human race. And he had to satisfy his justice, his own law, uphold his whole nature so that he could have a relationship with you and I. The gospel of blood. I just have been deeply concerned that we kind of go around certain things that we don't want to talk about because they're not pleasant but through the gospel.